Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name is Craig Forces, and I'm here over the magic of Zoom with Stephanie Carvin. And this is the first of what we're calling Muskoka Chair Chats. A follow-on of our prior series, Her Majesty and Right of Pod. This time, though, Stephanie, our topic is a little bit different. What are we doing? Well, today we're going to be doing an introduction to the Charter, a big background piece. We talked a little bit about this with Phil Lagasse way back last year. So if you want, go ahead and listen to all those Her Majesty and Right of Pods. They're right there waiting for you. But today we're going to be actually doing a deep dive or starting our deep dive on the actual uh, Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which has come up so much in all of our discussions about national security, whether we're talking about like Section 8 uh, in particular, but all the other kind of charter trials that we've looked at uh, that seem to be having more and more of an impact on how national security law and policy is carried out in this country. And to guide us through this series of Muskoka Chair Chats, very pleased to welcome to the pod Charisma Mathen, who is my colleague at the University of Ottawa and also a scholar and teacher in constitutional law, especially the Charter. And also, Charisma, you've, you've got a new book out. Uh, and so why don't, why don't we start just by you saying a few words about your new book? Thanks so much. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, I've just got a book that came out on June 1st. It's called The Tenth Justice. The longer title is Judicial Appointments, Mark Nadon and the Supreme Court Act Reference. It's part of the UBC Press landmark cases series, which looks at, funnily enough, landmark cases in Canadian constitutional law. And so this looks at a relatively recent case or opinion of the Supreme Court of Canada, where in 2014, they ruled that their um, latest appointee, Mark Nadon, was actually ineligible for his seat because of a whole bunch of really interesting historical Uh, facts about the Supreme Court and the special reserve of seats for the province of Quebec. So it was an extremely dramatic moment in Canadian law. It was a really fascinating political struggle. And we, my co-author, Michael Plaxton of the University of Saskatchewan and I, recounted in this book and we tell the, the whole tale. So I'm going to click over to Amazon as soon as this podcast is over, because it's a very interesting case. And we're actually, uh, colleagues are working on a history of the federal court. And Mark Denon, of course, uh, has been a justice of the federal court of appeal. And so interesting overlap. And so I need to read your book. (laughs) All right. So let's get underway today. So the the thought here, and and we sketched out in our conversation before starting exactly what we're going to try to accomplish in in this podcast series. Uh, We want to do a tour of the charter that both balances between those who know very little about the Charter and those who have a greater expertise and is of interest to both, which is a delicate balance. But we thought that the starting point for both audiences is always going to be the foundational piece, which sometimes gets missed, I think, even if you get into the doctrine around the Charter. And so this is really our episode on the origin story of the Charter, which picks up on a separate conversation that we had as part of our series on Her Majesty Right of Pod with Adam Dodek on the origin story, but uh, this is our opportunity to refresh that issue. And so where should we start, Charisma? Where would you start that origin story? Well, I think one way to approach the origin story of the Charter is just to note that the Charter was not Canada's first constitutional moment or document. Canada had had a constitution for over 100 years, initially called the British North America Act. 
Today, we call it the Constitution Act 1867, or I will often say the CA 1867, that set out the set out confederation, this union of four colonies into a federal state. And the BNA Act was really concerned with the relationship between the federal national government and the provincial subnational government. So really setting out what we call areas of jurisdiction, who has power over what. So the federal government has power over criminal law. The provinces have power over schools and hospitals. So the BNA Act, or the Constitution Act 1867, was very much concerned about government-to-government relationships, how states interact with other states, in this case, federal federal states, subnational, provincial states. What was left out of that equation, for the most part, was the citizen. What rights, what protections do the citizens have in their relationship with governments? And that is what we think of as constitutional rights, civil liberties, fundamental freedoms, the things that we see, for example, in the U.S. Bill of Rights, which, of course, has been part of its constitution since the 1800s. So that really was not part of the Canadian conversation for many decades. And then what happened was a number of factors in the mid-20th century conspired to produce a readiness, even a hunger, in the Canadian community for a similar approach to entrenched constitutional rights. One of those was the gradual decline of the British Empire and Canada's identification with the British Empire. Because in Britain, there has never been an entrenched Bill of Rights. The legislature or parliament is supreme. And so while there are, of course, very important guarantees and principles that Britain abides by, it's never taken the step, for example, that the U.S. has to have a, an entrenched set of rights that are just beyond the scope of parliament. We call that notion parliamentary supremacy. And Canada, being modeled in the same vein as a former British colony, took that approach as well. Like, didn't, didn't think it necessary to limit parliament's authority to act. But over the course of the 20th century, Canada started to disengage from that identification. And this took place at the same time as the British Empire itself started to lose influence in the world at large. So that was one important, almost psychological element in in Canada's political consciousness. There were also, of course, many important things that happened in the mid-20th century, namely two world wars the creation of a new international community, really focused on rights, reacting to the horrible excesses of those world wars, and seeing a need to ensure protections for minority groups. Canada was very self-consciously involved in that international endeavor and saw it as helpful, as desirable, for it too to reflect those new commitments domestically. You also had, of course, demographic changes in Canada. You had the opening up of our immigration system to non-Anglo countries, right? A much, much more diverse swath of immigrants coming to, to Canada that created sort of different expectations. In one sense, there was maybe also an intolerant stream in Canada that 
We needed to have entrenched rights so that people who were coming here from you know, non-British societies would know what was ex- what was expected of them. But at the same time, there was a, there was a recognition that as the society became more diverse, there might also be the need for different kinds of social contracts, if you will. And then domestically, there was a very tense situation developing with the province of Quebec, which was increasingly becoming committed to notions that it was not well served within the Canadian Federation and should perhaps seek to go out on its own to actually seek independence or sovereignty or whatever term you want to use. So there was a national unity concern that was probably one of the most important motivators for Pierre Elliott Trudeau, both when he was a justice minister in the, in the 1960s and then when he became prime minister to use the idea of a national bill of rights, a constitutional guarantee of rights and freedoms to provide something for all Canadians to cleave to and improve or strengthen uh, national bonds. Now, one of the things that some people do talk about and mention in terms of this history of rights adherence and acknowledgement of rights in Canadian legal history is something called the Canadian Bill of Rights. No one talks about that as much anymore, although I, I still teach it because it's important in administrative law. But, but it, it's sort of, what, a halfway house between not having any rights at all and having a constitutionalized system. Do you want to describe how it fits into this history? Absolutely. So the Canadian Bill of Rights was a very important moment. It was federal legislation that reflected many of the things that we would think of when we think of constitutional rights rights in 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 the legal process rights of equality and non-discrimination the difference between the canadian bill of rights and what we ultimately came to entrench as the charter were first the canadian bill of rights was federal law and it only applied to federal laws so it was more limited in its application, and it didn't have the special characteristic of constitutional law, which we can, we can come to. It wasn't something that would be supreme over all other laws. It, it had a, a narrower effect. Now, you, there was the possibility of taking a case under the Canadian Bill of Rights and having the court rule that a particular law was inconsistent with the Bill of Rights, but then what would happen then was the subject of much debate. And the Canadian Bill of Rights became associated with a very cramped, narrow approach to certain really important equality and anti-discrimination issues, wherein the Canadian Bill of Rights became associated with a series of discredited decisions by the Supreme Court of Canada that really were not seen to effect or to bring forward a progressive or liberal approach to, for example, discrimination. So in a, in a notorious case involving the Indian Act, which said if you were an Aboriginal or Indigenous man and you married someone who did not have status under the Indian Act, that woman, because of course at that time it was all opposite sex, that woman and her children would gain status through you. But if you were an Aboriginal woman who had status and you married someone who didn't have status, you, your partner, your children would lose status. So there was this clear distinction on the basis of sex. And when it got to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court said, well, what's really important under the Bill of Rights is that 
every Aboriginal woman is treated equally. So as long as the application of the law to that specific group is maintained, there's no discrimination problem. Like that was not something that would give most citizens, I think, confidence that the essential unfairness of laws was something that the Supreme Court appeared to be very interested in looking at under the Canadian Bill of Rights. And so let's pick up on that point you made just a moment ago about something that's constitutionalized. So you mentioned at the outset of this conversation that the British North America Act, now the Constitution Act of 1867, has been constitutional from the beginnings of Canada itself. And that suggests that there's always been a set of firm fetters on what you described as parliamentary sovereignty or parliamentary supremacy, that we have never had as absolute a concept of parliamentary supremacy or sovereignty as the UK has. That There's always been that concept of written constitutional law that somehow circumscribes what it is the parliament or the provincial legislature might do. Um, And so it's not all that radical to now imagine that there's a further constraint tied to individual civil liberties. But Let's can, can we unpack that? Can we unpack what, what you intend by the term uh, constitutional? So by constitutional, I mean fetters or limits on what political actors can do that pre, pre-exist them, that are the subject of an overarching commitment that they cannot escape absent a very specialized process, i.e. formal amendment of the constitution. And you're quite right to say that judicial review, the idea that the courts will look at, for example, legislation passed by majorities in Parliament and determine whether that is consistent with the Constitution, that did not, that is not a product of 1982 and, and the entrenchment of the, of the Charter. That goes all the way back to at least 1867, potentially the Colonial Laws Validity Act, which even predates, predates that. And the idea is that Yes, there were restraints put on the authority of the provincial and federal governments vis-a-vis each other. So the idea is that there's this universe of things that a state or that a government can do. And in the case of the Canadian Constitution, we've divided up those things between these two orders of government. So the, the battle is between the two orders of government. But once you determine that a particular law falls within, let's say, criminal law ceded to the federal government, then the Constitution has nothing further to say about what that criminal law does Mm. or how it operates. So there is a constitutional limit. It's a jurisdictional limit, but there's no other kind of limit. So the law can be quite draconian. But as long as it is properly within, say, criminal law, the Constitution sort of steps back. And then it becomes, for example, a political question. It might also become a question of how the courts interpret the law, because courts do have some authority, but they won't be doing that under the vestiges of the Constitution. So, Charisma, in this intervening period, we had a Constitution. It was entrenched. There was the concept of judicial review after the Constitution Act of 1867. We don't have an entrenched set of written constitutional provisions that govern civil liberties and civil rights until 1982, but was there an effort by the courts in the interim to derive from the Constitution Act of 1867 some protections for the individual? There was. There were a series of cases in the mid-20th century, most of which had to do with racially discriminatory laws, but also some to do with freedom of expression 
where the Supreme Court recognized, particularly with respect to expression and political discourse, that there was in Canada, as there was indeed in Britain, a tradition, a recognition that that kind of activity was essential to the entire political project. And we call these the implied Bill of Rights cases. The trick, though, is that they were still very much approached under the model of federal provincial power. So what we did not have, even with these implied Bill of Rights cases, is the court saying that if you satisfied the division of powers question, the law could nonetheless be found somehow invalid. Now, they might use the principles, the respect, for example, for freedom of expression in how broadly or narrowly they interpreted the actual statute. But the the most famous of these cases actually relate more to provincial laws that because they were draconian, because they were, for example, um, engaged in blatant racial discrimination, the court found either that they were an attempt to entrench on the federal power over immigration and naturalization, or they really trenched into criminal law, which, which I've talked about. So they used the principles, but it didn't really subvert or undermine the essential uh, feature of the division of powers, which is that if the government has the power under the BNA Act, the Constitution Act 1867, there's little that the court would be willing to do in a strict, formal constitutional sense. So Stephanie has a question, but just to summarize where we're at then. So by prior to 1982, we've got an entrenched constitutional law that really governs the branches of the state and the relationship between the provincial and federal levels. Within the context of that entrenched constitutional law, there's some wiggle room for a court to infer some rights protection, although it's quite limited. At the statutory level, at the federal level, we have the Canadian Bill of Rights, which purports to guard uh, certain rights which have an echo then later in the charter, but they're given a very narrow interpretation. It applies only at the federal level, uh, and moreover, it can be overridden by subsequent statutory language which uh, is introduced and says notwithstanding the Canadian Bill of Rights this provision applies and so we have in other words a very limited codification then of civil rights uh, and uh, human rights within our constitutional firmament prior to 1982. So Stephanie uh, your question. So Chris Matt what happens in 1981. I mean, we didn't just go poof. Hey, everyone, look, we have a, a, a charter of rights of freedoms. Isn't that great? So can you talk us through like the actual development of this charter? So in order to understand what happened in 1981 with the charter, it's important to realize that what we were going through was a process to amend our existing constitution, which had happened numerous times between 1867 and 1981 but was not something that Canada was able to do on its own. The Parliament of Britain, Westminster, really in its imperial role, so we literally call it the Imperial Parliament, was the body that could amend the Constitution of Canada. And it would do so on request from Canada. The, the, The way that that would happen is there would actually be a resolution from Parliament, from our Parliament, that would be forwarded to Westminster. Now. The question then becomes, well, what had to happen in Canada for that to proceed? What were the preconditions for that request to be made 
to to Westminster. And there was a history of federal provincial negotiation over that, right? So it wouldn't just be the federal government going unilaterally to Westminster. That happened like on occasion, but for the most part, there was an accepted practice of consultation with the provinces. And so that was what was attempted numerous times from the late 1960s through to 1981. You would have these federal provincial conferences where they would hash things out. And obviously the, the aim for the most part would be consensus and it would often break down. Often Quebec was the holdout for a variety of reasons and the project wouldn't go anywhere. So what changed in 1980, 1981 This is after the election of a separatist government in Quebec and the first Quebec referendum, which the sovereigntists lost, but still was a bit of a a wake-up call. And Pierre Trudeau had promised in the the lead-up to the referendum, he would bring the charter to Canada. So he was very exercised by this goal. And when the provincial negotiations broke down once again, he said, well, I'm just going to get a resolution from Parliament and go to Westminster on my own. And I'm confident that they'll actually pass it. They're not going to be concerned about the internal wrangling in Canada. What happened was the provinces that objected to that referred a series of questions to a a number of courts that ultimately was heard by the Supreme Court in what we call the patriation reference. And what the Supreme Court held was that while it would be legal in a constitutional sense for Pierre Trudeau to unilaterally seek change to the Canadian constitution, it would not be consistent with what we call a constitutional convention. So it would be legal, but in an important sense, it would be illegitimate. This is a very important ruling from the Supreme Court of Canada. And as a result of that, there were renewed negotiations. It was at this time, so the package that they were, that the provinces and federal government were talking about included the charter, included section 35, which is the part of the constitution that deals with Aboriginal rights. It included an amending formula. So you would never again have to go to Westminster to to change the Canadian constitution. It would all happen in-house, if you will, in Canada. And it also included, as part of the charter, the notorious Section 33, the notwithstanding clause. What happened was that over a period of a couple of days in November of 1981, nine of the provinces were able to reach an agreement with the federal government, but Quebec did not sign on. And so the ultimate package that was passed through resolutions of parliament and forwarded to the UK Parliament had the sign-off of nine of the 10 provinces and the federal government, but not Quebec, which is a continuing uh, tension, a continuing irritant in Canadian constitutional law. Yeah, I guess that's kind of my question. Quebec didn't sign on. I mean, does that affect decision-making today? even in, in some cases, perhaps even the perceived legitimacy of the Constitution we have. I mean, I think I'm jumping ahead here from 1981 slash 1982. Some of my <laughs> first Canadian politics memories have to do with uh, the Charlottetown Accord and uh, multiple attempts to try and bring uh, Quebec into the Constitution. So what what is the significance of Quebec not signing on? So the significance of Quebec not signing the Constitution Act 1982 is what we call it, 
is hugely important politically and has affected much of what has followed the patriation event. Legally, constitutionally, it has no significance whatsoever. This, is, this was in part determined in what we call the Quebec veto reference. So the Constitution Act had really, everything had already been set in motion at the UK Parliament, but nonetheless, Quebec had tried to get a declaration from a court that because of its special place within Confederation, because of the bi-juridical, bilingual uh, nature of Canada, as it was then understood, Quebec wasn't just like any other province, and it mattered that Quebec didn't sign on. In essence, Quebec, unlike any other province, should be recognized as having a veto. The Supreme Court unanimously rejected that argument, so Quebec did not enjoy a veto, and that meant that the Constitution Act 1982 applies in its entirety to Quebec. Quebec and Quebecers have certainly litigated cases using the Constitution Act 1982. Quebec has made use of the notwithstanding clause, which we can talk about. So it's, it's a political reality and a political difficulty, which caused a couple of other attempts to again amend the Constitution in the 1980s. But legally, constitutionally, there is no significance to the fact that Quebec did not sign the Constitution Act 1982. So then if I can just ask one more follow-up question is that it is interesting that Canada went down this route of wanting to really entrench our rights in a constitutional document. That might be the American influence to our South, but you know, it's interesting. Uh, I've lived in the UK and you know, there's, there's different debates about a, a constitution there, even a lot of resistance. Australia doesn't really have a constitution. So why did Canada go this route in your view? Yeah, it's a great question. I think as with so many other questions of this type, there's some historical factors and then there's some contingent factors. So the historical factors, I would argue, I think are are increasing identification within the North American political community and construct, which grew over the course of the 20th century, did provide that natural counterpart that natural counterpart of the United States. And I would note as well that in the 1960s, we saw a much more assertive and what you could see as a progressive uh, development of the Bill of Rights in the United States in terms of the civil rights era and desegregation and the Warren Court's approach to criminal law. And so, and, and the effect of that on the popular culture, including in Canada, I think really cannot be overstated. I would add to that Canada's particular ambitions internationally, I, I, and I just don't know enough about, about our com Commonwealth sister countries, but our ambitions internationally would also possibly have brought to bear different considerations and motivations that would just have created more of a political appetite in Canada for that kind of change. And then also what I refer to the specific domestic challenges in Canada around national unity and the particular figure of Pierre Trudeau and his analysis going back decades over why uh, the time was right for an entrenched Bill of Rights in Canada. So that's great. That's, that actually provides us with a nice thin set of foundation stones upon which to build our discussion of, of the Charter in, its, in all its glory and all its niceties. 
Uh, is there something else that our listeners should know about the origin story uh, before we uh, terminate this podcast in anticipation then of picking up on the details in our next round? One of the really interesting things about the origin story of the Canadian Constitution is that while the formal agreement was negotiated among 11 political actors, right? The prime minister and the 10 premiers. The actual negotiation was perhaps the first process in Canada of public reason and public constitution making, similar to constitutional conferences that would have happened in in other countries. So this idea of the constitutional assembly, it wasn't constituted as such, but those hearings over the course of months on parliament with a number of organizations, women's groups, indigenous groups, really, I think, were essential to fomenting public awareness, public passion, public support for the constitutional project. And while much of that now you have to turn to history to, to, to read about it, it didn't actually happen that long ago. And, and it was really the start of a very interesting moment politically in Canada around public debate over just essential features of how we govern ourselves. Well, thanks very much, Chris, but this has been really useful in setting the stage for us. And so uh, listeners will be reassembling periodically through the summer. We're anticipating maybe a total of six episodes where we now start to march through the, the specific features of the charter. And so stay tuned. And, and a thanks to Charisma for being our tour guide in this episode and, and also for coming on board for future episodes. Thanks, Charisma. You're very welcome. And notwithstanding, huh? see, charter joke, huh? right? Okay. Uh, notwithstanding a further interruption, we look forward to seeing everyone again soon. So stay tuned.